Grab your Bible. We're going to be continuing our study of Galatians. So we're near about the halfway point. We'll be picking up in chapter 4, where we will find probably the second most famous verse in the book. The first being, of course, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This one we get the when the fullness of time came. The one Christmas verse that's not in the Gospels, right? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Of course, all of this is spoken in a very precise context. So let's just kind of rebuild um, real quickly the context for what's going on in the book of Galatians. So first, who wrote the book? The Apostle Paul. And this is significant because the Apostle Paul has what major things as part of his background? He's a Pharisee, really big deal. So as a Pharisee, what would have been a big deal in his life? The law, observance of that law. Um, what are some of the negative connotations of being strict with his law? So he's a persecutor, and that's probably going to be out of the fact that he's prideful, going to be arrogant of a certain sort, very common in the Pharisee world. But then there's another thing about Paul that's significant that's kind of contrary to his Pharisee background. Any guess of what that would be? Okay, born in Turkey. I wasn't going to be that precise, but he has a Greek, Greek background. These are in a lot of ways polar opposite, but this is going to turn out to be very much by God's design because what is he going to spend his life doing? He's going to preach the gospel that he was exposed to in the law, to this group of people. So he's perfectly equipped for this task. Galatia is a region where there's a lot of Gentiles, also a lot of Jews. He has preached the gospel in that region, planted churches. He was successful, very vibrant, healthy church community. In this region, he leaves, and while he's gone, and this is why the context of Galatians matters, what group of people moves in? Y'all got it now. Judaizers, and of course, to remind us all, that's our term. Um, the Bible doesn't use this word. This is just our word to describe this group of people. The biblical term I can't spell because I always struggle with the word circumcision. They're often called the circumcision party. Um, one time, just the people from James, um, though they probably weren't on James's team. They were just his trouble people, and he, he sent them to Paul to be Paul. Okay, we don't know that, but... They left from James's area. So the Judaizers come in, and what are they teaching? What's their primary theology? Jew need to be one, so Jew need to be a Jew. So we'll put some brackets around there. They mean Jew in a very particular sort of way. And so let's think through this. So in the Old Testament, um, we see this lingo. Where on the one side, you have the righteous, and then on the other side, you have what group? Okay, unrighteous would work. I'm going to go with wicked. And a Jew would be in which category? They'd be the righteous, right? Or at least they assume they are. This is their belief. You go read the even the first psalm emphasizes this distinction. The righteous man, he doesn't hang out with the wicked. The righteous man is concerned about the way of the Lord. You see this lingo throughout the Old Testament. Paul is going to argue that the way you get, I'm going to use the word filtered. The way you get filtered 
or the criteria. Can you say that? Criteria. Is that right? Um, is what? According to the Apostle Paul, you get designated as righteous or wicked based on what in your life? Just simply faith. So for Paul, the key word is faith. If you have faith, you get sorted to this side. Well, what if you're a sinner? What if you're a Gentile? Well, doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is whether or not your faith is in Jesus. The Judaizers are answering the question of this filtration process. There's a different criteria by which you are categorized. And what is that criteria? Works. But works in what way? Uh, okay, works of the law. So obedience to the law. So do you eat pork is a more important question to the Judaizers than do you follow Jesus? Of course, you can understand why the Apostle Paul thinks that's a ridiculous comparison. A right, big deal. So Paul went around preaching that we are justified by faith in Christ. I have the blank there. We are justified by faith in Christ. Any guesses? Alone. Exactly. By faith in Christ alone, not by works of the law. So Paul is arguing that this little process here, we're going to call it the filter, where you, by some criteria, are set in the one category or the other. And that's a lot of words to describe what Paul uses one word to say. And Paul's one word for this process is justification. And if you think about it, when we define justification... How do we use, what's the simple definition of that word? Not made righteous so much as declared righteous. So it's just saying, oh, you get weighed, you get stamped, righteous. Doesn't mean you are, really, because if you look at your life, some of the people that get stamped righteous, especially guys like the Apostle Paul, if you weigh him on that day, what's that guy look like? The day he meets Jesus and gets justified, what was he doing? He's, he's literally persecuting the church. And in that moment, Jesus shows up and justifies him by a filter where he ends up with faith, so he gets declared righteous. So that's what we're talking about. So we're justified by faith in Christ alone, not by works of the law. So they come in and teach the works of the law. Paul finds out about it, so he writes the letter. And that's why we have the book of Galatians. It's Paul writing to a church who had the gospel right. Faith alone was the criteria by which you were judged. But they have reverted to following works of the law instead. So if you remember, if you were here for that part of you've read Galatians, the first chapter he starts off very negative. You know, I cannot believe that you were so quickly deserting him who called you to a different gospel. And then he explains where he got the gospel from. Where did Paul get the gospel from? From Jesus. And then he checks it, though, with the saints who are in Jerusalem, like Peter. And where did Peter get the gospel from? So they both got it from Jesus, and when they compare their gospels, what was the relationship between them? They were the same. So he spends two chapters arguing that. And then a few weeks ago, we got to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he kicks off with that, oh, foolish... Galatians. Attitude's no better. Um, in fact, it's going to escalate and reach its culmination 
of um, pointedness in chapter 5, but he's trying to make an argument, and he starts off with a very simple question in chapter 3. Let's just back it up. The day you got saved and the day you received the Holy Spirit, what was the filtration process you went through? Did you, did you go get circumcised? Did you quit eating bacon? Did you get more righteous? Did you make yourself more holy? Or what did you do that day? You believed, which is the other word for faith. You just faithed that day, and you received the Holy Spirit. They know that. He didn't even have to argue that point. They remember this day. He was there when it happened. He saw this. They heard the gospel. They believed, and then he asked that kind of pointed question. So now that, now that you got in by faith, do you think you stay in by righteousness? Which is, of course, what's his answer? No, of course not. Then he goes through that thing about the law. You try to live by the law, what's going to happen to you? You'll end up cursed. Judgment. Because who can keep the whole law? And he, he backs up. Because there's Jews in that congregation. He says, guys, we all, we all know that none of us got sorted into this category because we were actually righteous. Now, we could just think through the Old Testament, think of examples of this, right? King David, clearly, if we filtered him through a works-based justification, which category does King David end up in? I mean, mass murderer. We're talking Hitler level. Well, maybe not that many people, but, you know, you don't have a positive spin on people that do some of the things that David did. But in the Old Testament, he's almost messianic because his faith is towards the one true God consistently. Because the criteria, Paul says, the criteria was always faith. The righteous live by faith, not by works. It's never been that way. In fact, you try to live by the law, you'll just end up under a curse. So he moves forward and he argues this by saying that when Abraham became God's man, so to speak, the father of God's people, what was it that Abraham did? He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. All right, so let's fill in this next blank. So the covenant that's based on grace through faith was promised to Abraham, and then Paul emphasized this, to his descendant, that is Christ. And then as believers in Christ, we are in the family of Abraham, heirs to the promise. Now, the reason Paul went through all of that it's to say that what makes those Gentiles God's people is the same thing that made Abraham God's people. So they are the same people of God. I don't know if y'all can hear me, but right here on the front. So, so, all right. So as believers in Christ, we are in the family of Abraham, heirs to the promise. Are there any questions so far? So that's our review. First three chapters. No, specifically I'm thinking of when he kills a whole squadron of soldiers to cover up the thing with Bathsheba. Because he sends out Uriah, and instead of just sniping Uriah, he puts the whole group under every archery fire, which is pretty callous, you know, if you think about it. All right, chapter 4. Here we go. Galatians 4, 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. 
but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul's just trying to make a simple analogy here. In a family, especially we're assuming here this is a wealthy family, even the idea of heir is usually spoken in what context? In royalty. So we're thinking the king and his son, while he's the child, the king's son and the slave are kind of the same. Now we would look at that and go, not really, <laughs> right? But what's Paul's, that's not his point. What's Paul trying to argue? What's this son have to do? I don't know anything, but he has to, and he's not the king. He's got to obey dad, just like any other servant. He's under this guardian. In fact, he may be under the same guardian um, where a slave is under. So they're equals for a time. Now, what's complicated here with Paul's analogy is he's going to weave back and forth using the one analogy between two completely unrelated Scenarios, And what I mean by that, our first blanks here, Paul's metaphor swings from individual to corporate. So he's going to say, when you were a child, and he could mean Old Testament Israel while it's under the law, or he could mean you before Jesus. Do you understand the difference? So one is your individual salvation narrative, and one is the Old New Testament narrative. So Old Testament Israel is the child who's under a guardian. New Testament believers are the child that's grown up. But then in your own life, before Christ, you're the child that's enslaved. You're the one under a guardian. Then you come to faith in Christ, and now you're set free. So he's using the same analogy individually for you as a single believer at the exact same time, he's using the analogy corporately. So it gets a little complicated from time to time when Paul's talking, but that's what he's doing. Let's fill in the next part. So the people of Israel were under a guardian, and the guardian was the law, which is directly stated back in chapter 3, which is verse 24. So then the law was our guardian. So we don't have to do any interpreting gymnastics there. It's just directly stated. The law is the guardian. So that's what it was for the people of Israel. Just like the Gentiles were under slavery to pagan gods. So what did he just put in the same category? He's put idol worship and following God's law in the Old Testament in the same category. Now, that's a little awkward because does Paul have a positive or negative view of the law? Actually, Paul, he tells us in multiple places, the, the law is good. And we, we discussed last week, a Christian, does the Christian have any obligation to the law whatsoever? Well, think about the Ten Commandments. Do you need to know other gods before Yahweh? You still have to do that. Can you take the Lord's name in vain now? Should you make a graven image now? Are you still supposed to honor your father and mother? All right, well, the Sabbath one's complicated. Well... Technically, yes. The answer to that was yes. But all the others, adultery, still have to obey that. Uh, murder, still obey that. Bear false witness, still obey that. You follow where I'm going. Covet, can you covet now? No, still, still obey that. Well, what if we just summarize the Old Testament into its two principal commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You still have to do that. Second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you still have to do that one? 
So essentially Paul's saying, and Jesus was saying, you still have to do the law. But then we were nuanced. We recognize there's parts of the law that are no longer valid. And so, so we have to look at that from that way. So Paul, we have to think about when he's making these arguments, he's not outright denying the function of the law. He loves the law. He's going to tell you to obey the law in chapter 6, to fulfill the law by loving one another. It's the basic function of the believer. However, there is a way we can look at the law as he used to when he was a Pharisee. And in that sense, the life Paul grew up in is more described by being a slave than it is by being someone growing in godliness under the guardian. Do you see what he's doing? So he is putting the law and pagan worship side by side, but he's putting a false view of the law next to this pagan idolatry. You with me? So we just got to be careful how we navigate what he's saying there. So the Israelites were under the law, just like the Gentiles were under slavery to the pagan gods. And so it says in verse 3, in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world. The Greek word there is very similar to our usage of the word elementary. And so, well, at least in one particular way. But when you think of elementary, what's the first thing you think of? Basic first, subatomic particles, you know, whatever you want to think of. I think of subatomic particles. I don't know why. I think of the elementary particles, which is the stuff that you can't break down any further. We used to think that was atoms. It's not atoms now. We've got, I think there's 21 fundamental particles in quantum mechanics. Anybody nerd out on that? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Can you name them? Give me a few. No. <laughs> I move on a quark. I know an electron, proton, neutron, a moron. There are morons in the room. And right, right. Okay. All right, but the idea of elementary, and the word in the Greek means the same thing in the quantum mechanic realm. It's just the bare basics, the very bottom, smallest piece of the puzzle. So when we're talking here about spiritually being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, what do you think he's talking about here? So slavery in this context, for the Jew it was the law, and for the pagan this is his idol worship. What parts of that, what do you think Paul's saying? What's he getting at when he says the elementary particles? Principles. Sorry, I like that. Exactly. So, so th this is the rituals. This is the bare fundamental religious practices. So for Jews, they boil their system down. If they did it correctly, they would boil the whole law down to two laws. And that's the correct way, though. For the Pharisee, however... You boil the law down, you end up with a different set of fundamental principles. And what are those fundamental principles for a Pharisee? One is going to involve standing on your pedestal and separating yourself off from those lowly sinners. All right, it's going to be some religious works-based action. Well, what about the pagans? By and large, what kind of actions are their fundamental elementary particles? Particles. Principles. I just can't say the word. Well, everything. So it's almost always going to boil down to some kind of sacrificial system. 
Um, I like the movie Clash of the Titans. You see this. They offend the God. By default, offended God means you need to do what? Make a sacrifice. And the formal term from a super nerd in the room for that kind of sacrifice is what? I'm sitting in the corner. Propitiation. So close. It just, yeah, you should have said it. You should have said it. Propitiation. All right, so let's fill in these blanks. So the elemental principles of the world are the basic and meaningless components of religious practice. That's what Paul's usage of the word here is. This is the basic bare bones. You're just going through the motions, and they are only motions. We can have that in Christian practice, Jewish practice. We can have that in pagan practice. Another way to say it, the elemental principles focus on appeasing God slash little g gods by human behavior. That's the fundamental piece that Paul is talking about. So in some way, you are trying to earn your way into God's favor. And ultimately, that's what every version of false religion is trying to do, is earn your way into whatever version of God you have concocted. You're trying to get into his favor by your human action. So Paul's saying Gentiles and Jews alike were doing that. So Paul is a Pharisee, was following the elementary principles, which for Paul, this is negative terminology. He was doing that just like the pagans when they went and worshipped Zeus, same category. Two different kinds, two different flavors. You go to Baskin Robbins, you got a lot of different flavors of idolatry. One of them was called Yahweh, but there was still an idolatrous version of that. That's what Paul's saying. So then we get to the famous verse which is verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So let's just work through that phrase by phrase. So number one, but when the fullness of time had come, there's a lot in that thinking. Well, what's the main idea behind just that phrase, when the fullness of time had come? When it was the right timing, well, that's the event, but I'm just thinking through the idea of the phrasing, when the fullness of time came. P plan, that's the word I wanted, plan. There was a plan. This was not God responding to a bad scenario, making a bad scenario good. This is the plan. So Jesus' incarnation, life, death, and resurrection were always the plan of God for salvation. This is absolutely critical in Christian theology. Sometimes happens, yeah, I was even taught this growing up in church, um, that the Old Testament was plan A and the New Testament was plan B. God has never made a plan B, ever. This is plan A. From beginning to end, before the ages began, this plan was decided upon. And in the fullness of time, in other words, when everything in the plan had come to pass, that needed to come to pass for Jesus to come, then and only then did Jesus come. Well, think about it. The Old Testament has prophecies. Prophecies of what? Jesus coming. So did the Old Testament expect to be the end? No. 
The Old Testament's even the Old Testament in the Old Testament. It prophesies the new one coming. That exact lingo. Question in the back. I'm just trying to decide how, how deep to go into that. Um, I don't think it answers the question because what we're saying, and, and I don't disagree with what you're saying, but the question here is if Jesus died on the cross as plan A, it presupposes sin, death, suffering, evil in a lot of ways. So whether it's by... Correct, correct. Okay, well, God, see, I'm trying to decide how deep to go into this. No, no, this, we don't have to go lapsarian to answer this question. Golly, I have this desire to be super precise here, but that's going to take like a 20-minute caveat. I can, anybody got a place to be? <laughs> okay, all right. I'm just trying to decide whether or not to open this can of worms. Okay, so let, let me, I'm going to try to give you a short version of a complicated answer. So, in short, God knows everything. Period. God can't learn anything, He can't learn new information. You follow? He's creatable. He knows everything that there is. So there's no genuine sense in which God is ever wondering what Adam was going to do in the garden or what you were going to do in your life. Every single piece of that is in God's mind before creation starts. There's no, he doesn't press go, step back and say, hmm, I wonder which one's going to happen. As though he knows all the options and waits to see which path is taken. Does that make sense? So, so there's this inability for the concept of options. All right? All right. So, okay, we're getting into the weeds. And in God's plan, everything that happened up to Jesus on, on the cross was, was in it as it was going to happen. There was no, which course of action might we end up with? It's this one. And so when we think about God and his plan, we have to recognize that God is sovereign over everything, every detail, no matter how you look at it. He's absolutely sovereign. And they had no qualms with that in Scripture. We do in our modern society. We, we love our freedom and our independence. But even our freedom, you can call it as free as you want. God knew every choice you were going to make. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, absolutely. But in the philosophical realm, if God knows ahead of time, there's no such thing as free will. But we're getting the philosophical realm there. So I'm not in any way saying you don't make decisions in your life between options. You do that. And if we call that free will, then you have it. From a philosophical position, there's no chance, there's no variability 
there's one plan and one plan only. And from that standpoint, you know, the creation is not free to go otherwise than God has planned it. Even though you're free to make decisions in the moment. Which one is that? Okay, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're trying to peer behind the curtain. And we could see behind the curtain all day long, but we wouldn't even understand what we were looking at. So... Right, but it's still you doing it. That's the key. You were doing, and you were completely responsible for what you do in every moment. But at the end of the day, we'll get to the end, and everything will happen exactly the way God planned it to. Sure, sure. So we're talking about, see, primary and secondary causes is what we get into in, in philosophy. And secondary causes is you chose A because you wanted A. That's you. You choose A because you want A. You choose B because you want B. You back up. All these things are part of God's narrative. And just like Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But you could also say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Both, both were true. But both statements are there. But no matter what, Pharaoh did what Pharaoh wanted to do. Yes. Sure, and, and I would say even in that realm, he, you can't remove culpability from God because he still created this world and all the scenarios where you chose that. Like he's not making you choose anything. You're still choosing what you want. Like you, so usually in the defense of God, people are trying to, this is the problem of evil conversation. It's, it's more a problem of evil conversation than it is anything else. And people always want to defend God and make him not responsible for evil. Um, but the reality is, no matter how you look at it, he picked this world. And he picked this plan this way with these variables. So no matter how you end the conversation, Jesus dying on the cross is plan A. It's part of, you know, did the Roman centurion who nailed the nail, did he freely choose to nail them? Yeah, according to God's plan. But he, he all of our decisions... There are ours. They're, they're, they're mine. God does not violate the will of his creature. But he governs the world they live in completely. And so, though I make free decisions, I make no decisions outside of his plan. 
And it's complicated. But. That is a good book. That is a good book. <laughs> um, yeah, let's just call it there. This is, we get too deep into this. There's so many nuances. Even just the phrase free will is misused. Because technically, and here y'all going to run me off as a heretic now, from a philosophical position, there's no such thing as free will. That doesn't exist. Um, no one actually believes it does. Um, you only think free will exists because you don't know the definition of the word. Um, free will means you make decisions based on nothing. So completely random chance what you're going to decide at any moment. That's the only way will is free. But that's not true of any of you. You never make a decision that's free in that sense. You only make decisions that are intimately tied to your desires, what you want. Saying you have free will is like saying you go to Wendy's. What are you going to order at Wendy's? Oh, there's no way for me to know. Because when they ask, something's going to come out of my mouth, and that's what I got. I have no idea. But that's not what you did at Wendy's. When you went to Wendy's, you ordered the thing you wanted. Your will is completely slave to your desires. That's called compatible will. So you have a will that is compatible or it is intrinsically tied to other things. And so that's just the fundamental nature. So historically, Christians denied free will and considered it a heresy in the early church because it denied God as sovereignty. But they weren't in any way denying human responsibility in their actions. You have a compatible free will. Compatibilism is the formal term. Free is, we use the word free just to mean that you did that, not someone else. You didn't get possessed, God overrode your hands, and you wake up later and go, oh, I didn't even know I did that. Now, you know you did that. You wanted to do that. And that's, I mean, Pharaoh's the perfect example of that. From beginning to end, Pharaoh does exactly what Pharaoh wants to do. Is he accomplishing God's purpose? Only. It's the only thing he's doing the whole time. He's accomplishing God's purpose. But he's doing what he wants to do. And God's sovereignty is bigger. And so he's putting all the pieces together even with you doing exactly what you want to do. That's a big, big, long, I had nothing to do with this. In other words, God's plan is always, this was always part of the plan. Let's just move on. All right, next. Wow, okay. We'll see. Good thing we're not studying the word predestination. Wow, that would, you know, we, we'd, we'd really be going. All right, verse 4, we said, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So it's important to note here, and this is where I was going to spend all the time, so we'll get the short version of this. Jesus is truly human and truly divine. It's a big deal in theology. And just to illustrate that, Jesus is the opposite of the Trinity. You think about the Trinity, how many gods are there? Just one God, right? But in that God, so you have one nature, How many persons do you have? Three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three different persons, one nature. We're saying the opposite with Jesus. We're saying we have two natures, but one person. What are the two natures? God and, I'll put man, yeah, G and M. And they're not mixed. They're not combined. His flesh is not omnipresent. Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven. 
Where is Jesus right now? Everywhere. But those are two different questions with two different answers. But I can say Jesus is everywhere because he's only one person. But I also say he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. I can make both statements because he's the one God who is both of those things completely and at the same time. That's what we're hinting at here when we say he was born of a woman, born under the law. He is completely human, completely divine. Next, oh, and this is, I don't have time to work all this out. Jesus was obligated to keep the covenant of works. Y'all remember that from a couple weeks ago? What was the covenant of works? This was the one before the covenant of grace, but this covenant was started with Adam, and Adam's relationship with God was based on what? Works, obedience. He could stay in the garden. He could eat all the fruit of the garden, except for one tree. Of course, we know that story. He eats that one fruit of the one tree, gets kicked out. It's grace from that point. We are still under that covenant and have curse under that covenant. Jesus, however, symbolically busts back up into the garden and does not eat from the tree. So he faithfully keeps the covenant. In fact, how does the ministry of Jesus start? In all the Gospels, he gets baptized. What happens? Goes into the wilderness to be tempted. Three times. What's the final result of the temptation? He holds three passes. Forever he passes. So he lives the perfect life. That's he's born under the law to redeem those under the law. So Jesus' perfect life and, to use a fancy word, vicarious death destroys the curse of the law and brings us into the covenant of grace. So anyone in Christ gets to come into his covenant because he faithfully kept the covenant of works. So because he was born under the law, he's been able to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right, now here's where it gets good. Verse 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. All right, so how do we get the Spirit according to this? By being sons, how do we be sons? Faith in Jesus. So all those who have faith in Jesus receive the Spirit. This is very, very important. There's a lot of false doctrine built around misunderstanding this. The Spirit comes at salvation, which is faith in Christ. It's not an extra thing you get later. All right, if you build your system that way, you will recreate a works-based, two-tier, some people are holier-than-thou structure. That is not, that's the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is arguing for here. Faith gets you into sonship which makes you an heir, which means you have the Spirit. And then if you have the Spirit, the Spirit is what makes you cry, Abba, Father. Now, what's the idea there, Abba, Father? Well, for one, Abba is Aramaic, which is a sister language to Hebrew. And the Ab, the A-B, anybody know what that is in the Hebrew? Abraham, Abraham, father of um, peoples, father of peoples. So Abba is what? 
It's father, father. It's not what we say, though. What do we say in English? Dad, dad. Dad, dad, which is daddy. So this is just the Aramaic version of dad. This is father, father. This is dad, dad, daddy. So through the Spirit, we get, and this is important, sonship. <laughs> yes. There you go. Aramaic. Be careful asking me to spell words, Josh. I give it to you in Greek. <laughs> All right. So Jesus, or the Spirit grants us sonship. That's important. Some translations like to go gender neutral here. Um, but I think it's important that we do not. Because in their culture, um, sons and daughters did not have equal inheritance. So Paul universally uses the male version of this, even a paragraph after he said there's no male or female. Why do you think he does that? Exclusively uses the masculine term immediately. We're talking the next paragraph after saying there's no male or female in Christ. We all get the higher level adoption. So we are not technically then sons and daughters in the family of God. We're technically all sons. Equal co-heirs in his kingdom. So I think it's a big deal. So we get sonship in God's family through the spirit. And then our ability to cry, Abba, grants us assurance. Now, this one's a big deal. Let's unpack that for a minute. What does it mean to say you have assurance? How, is, how do we use that word theologically? Okay, so in other words, how do you know you're saved? Okay, so here's, here's how this works. So here's our little filter. We're going to call that our justification filter from earlier. And now the filter criteria we've said is faith. Faith, and when we say faith, we specifically mean faith in Jesus. And from that, we get sorted. We have faith. We're put with the righteous. We don't have faith. We're put with the wicked. Assurance is our ability to know for sure that we're on this side. Now, where do we typically find our assurance, though? So if you asked somebody, if you just, if I picked one of you in this room and I said, are you a Christian? I would think in this room most of the answers would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say, how sure are you at this moment that you are definitely a child of God? How do you, where do you get that assurance from? I think y'all know the right answer. But what, what, are you, what are you really going to do, though? That's what you're going to do. You're going to look at your works. Don't you, does you, do your works play a variable in this at all? No, no, in, in assurance. I don't mean whether or not you got filtered, but whether or not you know for sure which one you're in. Well, I mean, clearly fruit plays a role. If you've got a lot of fruit, that might end.
Sure. Okay, so we know the right answer here, right? Like, we know looking for my own righteousness is not going to give me assurance. But the reality is noticing my wickedness is going to remove my assurance. Whether I want it to or not, it's going to remove my assurance. I may be able to theologically answer the question right now. Hey, I know my assurance does not come from my works. But then I'm going to go home and my assurance, when I'm not trying hard, is based on where my works are. It just is. This is our psychology. I'm not saying that's correct. I'm saying that's what we do. So, how does the Spirit making you cry, Abba, give you assurance? Because what filtered you? Yeah, it's faith. Faith is what filtered you. Faith in who? In Jesus. And faith in Jesus as your Savior, your Lord. So, when do you cry, Abba, Father? When you're in need. When you're in need, which is usually one of the times assurance is even being tested, right? When you're in need, who are you asking for help? And if your call is, oh, Lord Jesus, I need your help right now. That's an incredibly assuring statement. I mean, think about my kids. If they were in danger, are they going to call out for some random person for help? No. What are they going to say? Mom. They're going to say mom, not, not dad. <laughs> they're not going to say, you know, Mr. So-and-so. They're going to call out for the one they trust. Well, and that cry. I mean, just think about it. Have you, You've been in that moment where you just cried out for help. Was it Jesus you were talking to? That's, that's pretty good indication. That's pretty good assurance of where your faith is. That's what I'm getting at. So it's not your righteousness or your wickedness. In another way, it's just saying your faith is in Christ, so your assurance is in Christ. Now, there's, you know, there's areas here where some people say, well, if you have doubt, you're not really a believer. That's a horrible thing to say. Um, there's two different conversations here. You can, you can doubt your faith, one thing, or you can doubt Jesus' power. Do you recognize that those are very different? This one's a lot easier. You see Jesus' power, it's like, oh, wow, this is incredible. Then you say, but, oh, no, no, am I, am I doing this right? Did I faith this well? Am I doing a good job here? I mean, I look at my fruit, and I just know. And the sin in my life this week, I'm just not sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can be here without having much faith in your faith. But you can't be here with no faith in Jesus. You see the difference? And that's where assurance comes from. And we'll, we'll see more of that in this letter. But let's keep going. We're, we're, we're out of time. So, see, where did we leave off? What, we did verse 6. So, verse 7, last verse. And this is really leading into the next paragraph, but uh, we'll, we'll dive into this a lot deeper next, next time. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's the main point. So, those in Christ are not enslaved to the law. This is why Paul's writing the letter. 
He's trying to tell the Galatians they don't have to be circumcised. They can't eat the pork. They can't eat the bacon. They don't have to keep the formal Sabbath day, um, though they do have the Sabbath. That's a different conversation. Um, he's telling them, you don't have to do that stuff. You're not under the law. Also, however, those in Christ are no longer enslaved to their former idols. So these pagans didn't come into Christianity from a pharisaical position. They came into Christianity from a slavery to their given idols. He's saying in both cases, you were no longer a slave, you were now a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. So your status in the kingdom is squarely based on your relationship to Christ. And that's why, of course, we call our religion Christianity. It's about Jesus and your relationship with him. Now the next paragraph, which we'll do next time, is it's good stuff. So I'm excited to see what Paul is going to say. Then he's going to make a really interesting analogy. Then he's going to tell people to emasculate themselves. It's just going to get good from here. So it's all uphill. So I'm really excited. All right, any questions on that before we formally close? <laughs> Free will, yeah. <laughs> Free agency. You want the right term? Free agency or compatibilism. There you go. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. I pray you bless the study. Let our Galatians be fruitful for our lives. Help us to grow and be faithful and trust you in your sovereignty to do your good plan through us as we yield in faithfulness to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.